Welcome back to the Audubon History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. This episode is about the 1001 Nights, and I know a lot of listeners know to what it refers in Arabic, Elf Leila Waleila, in Turkish, Bin Bir Gece, and in almost every major language of the world, we have translations of this collection of stories from medieval Arabic literature. The Thousand and One Nights have provided many of the iconic images and narratives of the Arab world, of course, with all their fraught oriental trappings in our own society. In film, Disney's Aladdin is one of the most recognizable iterations of this. But in this conversation, what we're going to be looking at is well beyond the history of film in Hollywood and the West uh, and Western images of the so-called Arabian Nights as we explore cinematic adaptations and interpretations of the Thousand and One Nights corpus in the Middle East, South Asia, and beyond. Our guest on the program is one of my University of Virginia colleagues, Samita Sunya. Samita, welcome. Thank you for having me. Samita Sunya is Assistant Professor of Cinema in the Department of Middle Eastern and South Asian Languages and Cultures, or MISELC, at the University of Virginia. Much of her work focuses on trans-regional circuits of cinema across the Middle East and South Asia. This conversation is right in that vein, but it's in fact based on a course that uh, Samita teaches, A Thousand and One Nights at the Cinema. Samita, tell us a little bit about the course, how you got the idea to teach such a sort of interdisciplinary look at The Thousand and One Nights and um, what you hope to do with it. When I joined the Department of Middle Eastern, South Asian Languages and Cultures at UVA, this was a serendipitously specific position, film historian doing work across the Middle East and South Asia. And I wanted to be innovative in thinking about the courses that I would teach. So not just film courses on Iranian cinema, Indian cinema, Mm -hmm. Egyptian cinema. And I realized with the prolific screen history of the Thousand and One Nights on screen, going back to the earliest, earliest moments of cinema, this would be a rich way of both exploring a text, a world, a set of images that have had a long history and a lot of origins in this region, the Middle East and South Asia, but also circulated globally. This course would be a way to access a lot of entry points into very different, many different discussions, spaces, genres of film. I I think it's a brilliant idea, just because as you said, through the Thousand and One Nights, not only are you exploring the entirety of cinematic history and, and all the different aspects of cinema that these stories lend themselves to, because they are so, you know, it's really an eclectic mix of images and, and stories, but also Thousand and One Nights has touched so many different cultures and has been, you know, is sort of in the popular culture of so many different places that it's really a fascinating tour uh, of cinema, uh, as you said, in a trans-regional uh, perspective. So maybe we can start our conversation just by bringing our listeners up to speed on sort of the long history of 1001 Nights uh, as a literary corpus, because of course it isn't in its origin a film series, it is in its origin um, a collection of interconnected tales um, that seem to have origins in various parts of the Middle East, South Asia, Central Asia, the medieval world uh, of literature, uh, and of course, 
took on a major importance uh, with the rise of, of publications and translations and printing later on. So why don't you give our listeners a, you know, a little bit of that history of the literature itself? Sure. So in a way, a la the method of archaeologists, scholars have been you know, digging into this question, what are the origins of the Thousand and One Nights? And what's important to stress, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners know already, is that there's no single origin, but the consensus seems to be that these were tales that sort of amalgamated um, over time, through various manuscripts, through the movement of people and ideas, um, a lot of scholars believe that the frame tales point to Sanskritic or Indic origins. Mm -hmm. At the same time, that a Persian compendium, the Hazar Afsana or Th a Thousand Tales, these Persian sources were also important, um, as well as the efflorescence of storytelling and the iterations of these stories that were actually um, transmitted by oral uh, storytellers, performers right. in the medieval city centers of uh, Cairo and Baghdad, which flourished in this kind of Islamic age of arts and literature, philosophy, um, and that's the place in which these stories accrued a lot of philosophical meanings, mm -hmm. um, the places in which, the context in which the Thousand and One Nights became enshrined as a kind of classic Arabic literary work. And this context is, I think, important even for my students in the film course to, again, recognize this long history and the diverse origins of these texts. Some versions of the tales point to origins that span not only Indic and Persian origins, but even Hebrew sources, Greek sources, as you mentioned, Central Asian sources. So the way in which the Thousand and One Nights have constantly been told and retold and changed and shaped, these have been some of the richest you know, stories in their circulation, perhaps one of the most prolific literary works in the world. And in part, that may also account for their prolific routes through so many contexts of cinema as well, because by, you know, the turn of the 20th century, these were really, really popular, had been popularized by European translators, 18th century European translations. They also kind of took on a really, really rich, prolific life in, in sort of print circulation. Right. And one of the things you mentioned that is really important for us thinking about cinema is, of course, the performativity of the tales from very early on as they were performed in public spaces by storytellers in these uh, different cities uh, for audiences, of course, with a great deal of license, I guess, for the storyteller to animate them, uh, so to speak, with different voices and, you know, projecting. And so those performances were also early adaptations of the stories long before the advent of cinema. And of course, you've mentioned that what really enables your course to be about sort of modern literature in the modern world and modern cinema is, of course, the importance and the reception of Thousand One Nights in Europe as well after the movements to translate and publish these stories. And I think I can foreground a few things that I think made The Thousand and One Nights particularly 
amenable um, to screen adaptations. One thing that, you know, emerged from this course as a quite a important insight was that despite the fact that these tales are connected with kind of older origins, they became a stage to show off the very modern marvels of the cinematic medium. Um, so uh, in terms of tricks, illusions, magic, like all of these aspects of the Thousand and One Nights were married to this new technology where in interesting ways, in multiple contexts, it was this um, sometimes genre um, of its own, the Arabian tale genre that became the stage to sort of show off um, audiovisual spectacle. So let's talk about that, you know, in terms of some of the earliest cinematic representations of The Thousand One Nights. Sure. So one of the oldest um, film adaptations that's, that you would be able to watch on YouTube um, would be Georges Méliès, the famous French filmmaker perhaps most well-known for Voyage to the Moon and the kind of iconic image of, of the moon with the rocket ship stuck in his eye. Georges Méliès's own background was that of an uh, illusionist, a magician. So his the sensibility that he brought to his films were that of a showman. So elaborate stages, um, tricks of, you know, people disappearing through various manipulations of the actual celluloid, um, painting the film with colors. So this this film, The Palace of the Arabian Nights, what's notable about it is that it doesn't actually adapt any specific tale or any specific characters, but rather that The Thousand and One Nights became a kind of world of magic and enchantment, talismans and loves lost and found and all of these different tropes that accrued visually that actually weren't even originating with cinema but had earlier genealogies of circulation in um, illustrated literature, children's literature, as well in Europe by this time. So drawing on this repertoire of kind of visually lush material, enchantment, magic, these are the ways by which A Thousand and One Nights comes into cinema. And of course, this has a lot to do with sort of the role that this corpus of stories played within uh, the modern Western, European, and American imaginary, and of course the larger role that the quote-unquote Orient played in sort of that world of imagination. And so through how people have used The Thousand and One Nights, I think our listeners can get a sense of sort of how uh, people in the West were thinking about the Middle East region and the Arab world um, in a historical sense, like imagining its past, but also in in how this land, this sort of almost fictional land was uh, distinctive from uh, modern Western societies. Absolutely. I think this critique is, is known and absolutely crucial to say that, you know, as Edward Said very famously pointed out, Orientalism was so tied to fiction, um, where the kind of imagination of the Orient as this exotic, feminine, feminized object of a kind of Western gaze was something that consolidated the 
um, imperial West and in its sort of sense of self. At the same time, I think that there are a lot of other discussions to be had around the Thousand and One Nights um, and and their screen history. Um, so, for example, when you start looking, you also realize that in other contexts, like non-Western contexts, there's still this exoticism. So, for example, um, in Indian film adaptations or Indian films that uh, draw on the Thousand and One Nights, that became um, a genre of its own, even in the kind of early moments of, of Indian cinema. And the repertoire of images that these films draw upon have very vaguely Central Asian Persianate reference. Whereas if you look at the Hollywood history, um, they're much more... Um, kind of drawing on images of swarthy Arabs and it's a it's a slightly different repertoire of images so even tracking um, the kind of reference for the fictionalized exoticism right. in these different places and the way that they shift um, became a really rich set of discussions for our course. So as our discussion continues and we move beyond uh, Western cinema, we'll we'll look for some of those differences in the exotic and as well as maybe some similarities. But first, maybe it's good to bring our listeners up to date on sort of just like what the image of the 1001 nights uh, in Hollywood cinema in the, in the United States and of course, you know, throughout the world as a consequence really was. I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, the Disney animated film Aladdin, which came out when I was a kid and I saw a lot of times and we had the soundtrack in my family's house. But of course, this was not the first uh, adaptation of Thousand One Nights for in Hollywood film. Absolutely. And Aladdin's own styling, if you look at, you know, his attire in the Disney in the 1990s Disney animated version, it actually harkens back to the iconic character uh, that Douglas Fairbanks played in the 1920s Silent Era Thief of Baghdad. Now, this film was immensely popular as a kind of swashbuckling adventure genre comedy mm-hmm. um, in the U.S. as well as far beyond. It was popular, for example, in India. So there's a way in which, of course, these films are laden and heavy with the kind of Orientalism that is problematic because sometimes they're read as being representations of the Middle East when, in fact, the repertoire of their visual genealogies act- actually go back to earlier histories of you know Hollywood cinema itself or um, colonial illustrated ver- versions of The Thousand and One Nights. But the, the weight of these images, I think, is very, very important to account for in terms of the extent to which they circulated. So, for example, one of the most interesting films that I teach um, in the course is of an incredibly psychedelic 1960s Japanese adult animated version of The Thousand and One Nights. Um, now, this didn't this film didn't do well um, in the U.S. because I think that audiences were really put off by adult content in an animated film at the time. But it was actually the first um, adult animated film to be ever screened in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And throughout this film, you have this really bluesy uh, guitar playing. It looks very Pink Panther-esque. Mm-hmm. 
And as another scholar has crucially pointed out, what's notable about this version is that the referent for A Thousand and One Nights in this film is actually the West. Hollywood, Jimi Hendrix, Psychedelia, where that exoticism, even though it's outfitted in, you know, Aladdin-esque or in this period, you know, Douglas Fairbanks-esque sort of imagery, um, it's pointing to, and in Japan, the associations with the Thousand and One Nights were pointing to the West. Right. That's very interesting. And I know our listeners who are students of 70s cinema will, of course, also be thinking of uh, Pasolini's uh, Arabian Nights, uh, the Italian filmmaker, of course. Yes, absolutely. I end up teaching these two films back to back because um, they're both films that... um, use the Thousand and One Nights or um, are inspired by the Thousand and One Nights as explorations of sexuality. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of background on the notorious Pasolini film, um, though not as notorious as some of his other films. Uh, The Thousand and One Nights was a 70s Pasolini film that was part of his trilogy of life. Um, And in this trilogy, he took three literary uh, epics, The Thousand and One Nights, The Decameron, and The Canterbury Tales. Right. Pasolini at this time had been frustrated with what he saw as a kind of sanitization of these literary works that he saw as being fundamentally at their core explorations of deep explorations of human sexuality. And he wanted to use this sort of sensuous audiovisual medium to reinvest these epics with that sensuality, which he felt had been kind of drained in the circulation of these works as children's tales. Right. And I guess his main reference point there is, of course, the Decameron, which you know, I've had to teach it in a modern Europe survey. Mm-hmm. It is loaded with like body, transgressive, sexual imagery, but... Is the thousand and one? Do you think a thousand one nights played that same role in medieval Arabic literature? Has that been sanitized? In fact, uh, the way that I can answer this, in short, is yes. But also, of course, we have to say that you know there are so many versions of the thousand and one nights that it's you know hard to say which exactly. But one thing that I do do in the course for students to get a flavor of some of the older. Arabic manuscripts is that I have them read the fantastic translation of um, a recent retelling of The Thousand and One Nights by the author Hanan al-Sheikh. And not only are these, is her writing beautiful to read, but you get a sense of the bodiness and the innuendo of the older manuscripts that she's drawing on in this retelling. Um, that makes the case to the students very powerfully that Aladdin is not the source or, you know, in any way sort of representative of this much longer um, life of the Thousand and One Nights. Yeah. And we won't be able to offer you any clips from that iconic Disney soundtrack from Aladdin, both notorious uh, and celebrated, depending who you ask. Because we don't want to get sued. Yes, because Disney would have bots out there automatically finding it um, to sue us. But we will offer a short little clip 
from an Indian film riffing on the 1001 Nights entitled Alibaba and the 40 Thieves from 1954. Enjoy this short audio clip and stay tuned for our discussion on 1001 Nights at the Cinema with Samita Sunya. Okay, welcome back. Chris Grayton here with Samita Sunya. We're talking about A Thousand and One Nights at the Cinema, and you just heard a musical selection from the 1954 Indian version of the Thousand One Nights film, a film titled Alibaba and the Forty Thieves. Uh, and if you clicked on the link to the video on YouTube, you'll see that the images. Uh, from the film and the music aren't all that dissimilar from what we would have encountered in Hollywood takes on the Thousand One Nights. So tell us about this clip and this film. Yeah, so I think that this a clip such as this shows both the trans-regional histories of you know contact and exchange of people, ideas, where the characters in this Hindi film, they're they're sort of outfitted in these kind of, as we talked about earlier, like vaguely Persianate Central Asian reference in terms of the imagination of where the elsewhere of the Thousand and One Nights unfolds. Um, at the same time, as you point out, there is also a, a way in which these images certainly hearken towards the Hollywood um, repertoire of images of the Thousand and One Nights. So what this points to, I think, are the multiple threads and circuits of the Thousand and One Nights as they're crisscrossing each other and the the prolific nature of these different circuits of cinema. In the in the case of, of Hindi films, as other scholars have noted, um, the Thousand and One Nights, not necessarily hardly beginning in the 50s, but in earlier moments, was synonymous with, you know, stunt action mm-hmm. films. 
and they were beloved. I mean, these were tales that were familiar to the audience. Alibaba and the 40 Thieves was not a new story to audiences watching this. So to see familiar tales come to life was a huge draw of these films. Um, and the other thing that one notes is that the attraction of the song dance sequences um, was such that there's a jazziness to a lot of these songs that again points to the ways in which the Thousand and One Nights became the stage for showcasing these modern kinds of marvels and entertainments, the cinema, the cabaret style song, dance performance, jazz, etc. And for our listeners in Turkey, they'll probably remember similar such takes on A Thousand One Nights from the 1970s in Turkey. Uh, films about Aladdin, the Aladdin's Lamp, about Sinbad, about Thousand One Nights, Bin Bir Gece, serving a particular role in the age of cinema in that first moment when color was introduced and everything got really wild for a bit. Of course, the colorful tales of One Thousand One Nights perfectly lent themselves to that spectacle. Absolutely. And this association between color and the Thousand and One Nights, um, as I briefly mentioned earlier, uh, it also emerged even in earlier moments before the advent of colored film stock, where these were the films that were being um, stained or painted. So if you think about like 1920 silent era German cinema, um, there were many uh, films that were set in this kind of milieu of the Arabian Nights tales, waxworks um, by Paul Lenny, for example, where uh, there's this kind of rich um, coloring of the celluloid even before the advent of colored stock. And so while the exotic, the colorful, the spectacular, the magical, the fantastical have played a role in represent representations of the Thousand One Nights, not just in Europe and the US, but also, as we've said, uh, in India and Turkey and elsewhere, this story and its most motif have played a role in other genres of cinema as well. Absolutely. Um, we talked about the adult film right. <laughs> already. Um, one of the most interesting films um, that is difficult to teach because it's not one that's readily accessible in a kind of high-res subtitled format is the 1960s Iranian film The Night of the Hunchback. So unlike these other kind of spectacular um, spectacle-driven films um, that in some ways predominate when you think of the genre of the Thousand and One Nights at, on film, uh, the Night of the Hunchback was a black comedy, um, very noirish in its style, um, a lot of kind of shadows, even expressionist in some ways. Um, but it was it's a psychological kind of film that adapts one very particular tale to make a broader commentary on the coldness of Iranian sort of urban society at the time and what students are struck by when uh, we watch this film and the only way we can watch it in class is um, with the the kindness of my colleague Mashad who is the Persian language lecturer who came in and delivered live translations of a wow. film from a very bad YouTube copy 
Um, so this foregrounds also questions of access distribution. So had this film not been on the syllabus because of its unavailability on, you know, a, a snazzy DVD, then it's we can't say that, oh, you know, there were no Iranian adaptations of this tale. So I think always to think about what gets left out or like right. what we can't teach. And this exercise in the class foregrounded this. Um, so that film was one that was really important for being part of the handful of films that, you know, inaugurated what has come to be known as a new wave of Iranian cinema that was different from the kind of popular or spectacle or musical driven cinema that was something else more psychological um, more realist and since we do want to make sure that people have as much access to that as possible we've also got a link to that youtube video and we'll offer y'all a little clip of some audio from that film before we come back with our discussion with samita sunya <laughs> Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. It's Chris Grayton here with Samita Sunya. We're talking about 1001 Nights in World Cinema. We just talked a little bit about and heard a clip from an Iranian take on the 1001 Nights Corpus, a black comedy um, titled Night of the Hunchback. And Samita, you were, you were explaining that in Middle Eastern cinemas, the 1001 Nights have been used for more experimental genres in cinema, not just sort of the fantastical and the magical that, of course, were so important uh, within the Western cinema. And I guess that leads into uh, a discussion about one such film that I didn't even know was actually referring mm -hmm. to the 1001 Nights, which is the film uh, Ashik Karib, um, by the, the Soviet-Armenian director, uh, Sergei Parajanov. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that film. Sure. Again, the association is looser in this case, but what's noteworthy is that Parajanov draws on a tale that's a kind of folk tale in this right. region. And th this tale was something that was supposedly told to a Russian writer by a Turkish person. So there's also this way in which he's sort of, the filmmaker self-consciously dealing with a genre and history of Russian Orientalism. And particularly in this context and in sort of um, Parajanov's larger um, body of work, 
um, in the Soviet era, you know, he's really interested in in making these films that were able or that were, you know, going against a certain Soviet-imposed homogeneity. So really, really recovering local specificities, um, uh, oral traditions, but not in any kind of neat way. So there are these moments throughout Ashik Karib where, as we say, the fourth wall is broken and you're constantly aware of the filmmaker's presence and his attempt in making this film. So while the film is replete with, you know, really elaborate costumes and music and invested in a kind of notion of folklore, it also complicates that by saying that this is also staged, it's also being filmed, um, etc. Um, even the languages, it's on this kind of border between present-day Georgia and Azerbaijan. So it, he, again, he's the filmmaker himself and his larger body of work is is really interested in, in borderlands and capturing a sense of fluidity of cultures and languages and also specificity of, of these places and their geographies and their storytelling genealogies. Right. And so the, the main character is an Ashik, uh, a, a bard or, or a troubadour, a traveling mm -hmm. uh, poet and, and musician and in the Caucasus, the figure of the mm -hmm. sort of early modern bard is one that transcends these ethno-linguistic boundaries as many of the famous musicians, maybe they were Armenian, but they composed in Turkish and, and Georgian as well. Um, and so here at Thousand One Nights is used to gesture to um, folk culture, I guess, but in a very postmodern way. Yes. And, you know, and, and this kind of meta cinematic or meta narrative quality of the Thousand and One Nights, it's, it's not something that postmodern in a kind of contemporary historical sense, but has a longer genealogy, um, you know, through the figure of Shahrazad, through the structure of the frame tale. Um, all of our listeners are probably familiar with this, but, you know, the premise of the Thousand and One Nights are that these are the stories that Shahrazad told to um, a brutal aristocrat who had this habit of bedding a woman every night and executing her by the morning. So these tales were not only um, a, a means of deferring her, you know, end, but also eventually became the means by which this man was reformed and repentant for his earlier violence. So the entire structure of the Thousand and One Nights sort of has inbuilt into it this kind of meta-narrative quality where it's simultaneously a meditation on the purpose and the power of storytelling um, in our worlds, in our social worlds. So that is also something that is... Um, uh, that that makes its way into a lot of cinematic adaptations, including um, something like Ashik Karib, which, again, rather than being a sort of straightforward adaptation of any particular tale or an overt sort of um, film that gestures towards A Thousand and One Nights is more about a kind of world of, of this genre, um, as I said earlier, as it was present in Russian and other kinds of film genres in this period. 
Another film that I sometimes teach alongside Ashik Karib is the Tunisian film The Dove's Lost Necklace. Um, similarly, there is a figure of a child in the film who's, you know, wandering about that also becomes a kind of metacinematic figure for the filmmaker himself as he's wandering through a kind of classic text and world of Arabic literature to meditate upon, um, you know, the images that circulate um, about this world in the West and in other places as, you know, as we've talked about earlier as being kind of riven in crisis. Um, so, so the kind of meanderings of the filmmaker in presenting this enchanted land once again at a sort of um, crossings. Um, Andalusia is sort of the site of this filmmaker's exploration in this film. It's a period film in a way um, that's looking at things like architecture, calligraphy, but through the eyes of a child growing up as an apprentice to a calligrapher. Well, this sounds like a uh, fascinating class where you can watch a lot of really interesting uh, <laughs> and uh, beautiful films. We're going to give a quick clip from that Parajanov film, Ashik Kari, because you know, it does have good music in it. You'll listen to a little bit of that. And then we'll come back to conclude our conversation with Samita Sunya about A Thousand and One Nights at the Cinema. So Samita, we've been talking about directors using A Thousand One Nights as a way to explore sociocultural issues. And uh, we talked about uh, the original frame story of Shahrazad using her ingenious storytelling techniques to forestall her own execution and thereby actually reform or, or change the mind of uh, her husband, the king Shahriyar. And of course, this would seem to naturally lend itself <laughs> to a modern feminist reading. So... I'm curious about some of the ways in which sure. 1001 Nights has been used in that way. I mean, particularly in this moment with the, you know, Me Too movements and everything, I think that it would lend, you know, itself to a set of really important conversations. Um, like one of the feminist critiques of the figure of Shahrazad and the way that she's been taken up is, you know, why is it women's burden to always re be the ones yeah. reforming men? Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is not to, you know, reduce a complex figure who has been circulating in a number of ways to just that, but rather to say that, you know, this is an important question to ask in attending to the complexity and the heterogeneity of uh, issues and depictions that have congealed around Shahrazad. A film that I sometimes incorporate is a film called Shahrazad's Diary. 
um, by the Lebanese filmmaker Zaina Dakash. This is a documentary of basically her endeavor to use drama therapy among women prisoners um, in the Babda prison. So in a way, Shahrazad and the idea of storytelling becomes married to a sort of idea of um, expressing or giving testimony to one's traumas as a way of overcoming them in this sort of therapy um, that is at the heart of you know her activism. Um, again, like there could be critiques of this, but I think it is important and interesting to ask, you know, why Shahrazad? Why is she the the sort of figure who's recuperated for this documentary film that's, you know, giving publicity or sharing uh, this work with kind of subjects of trauma in this case? Samita, it's really been eye-opening to me to see all these different ways in which 1001 Nights is used artistically and, and even as a vehicle for social commentary. And I know you've been dying, we're running out of time, but you've been dying to talk about this Turkish soap opera. And of course, <laughs> Turkish soap operas have a history of being a stage for friendly critique of major social issues, both in, in mm -hmm. Turkey, but actually in translation as well in the Arab world, where they showcase various mm -hmm. um, family issues. And I know Bin Birgeje is one of them that's very dear to your, near and dear to your heart. <laughs> well, I'll use this platform to make a plea to Netflix to put the second and third seasons up. I know that there are <laughs> petitions circulating. I think I've signed one of them because they only have 49 episodes uh, but I guess for the purposes of my work and productivity, it right. may be for the better. Um, Bin Bir Geche is fascinating to me because it does something that we've talked about in this podcast. And that is that it takes the Thousand and One Nights um, as this kind of older known text, but adapts it to think about contemporary contexts of um, marriage sex, sexuality, relationships. The The titular character is a woman named Sherazad who's a working single mother. And the premise of the entire show um, is, is basically that a boss who has slept with her and in, and in some ways been very misogynist, misogynistic towards her, um, is sort of reformed and falls in love with her, but it's, you know, an entire drama of how he can adequately uh, repent for his his initial um, extremely unsavory actions towards her. But the show itself can be, at, in a lot of moments, quite conservative. So there's also a way in which it's treading a line between thinking about modern, non-traditional or, or non-conventional, less conventional family arrangements. Um, so a widowed mother um, with a child, but who has a friend who sort of serendipitously ends up moving in with her and um, sharing the caretaking of the child. And then she's being courted by, you know, one of her bosses. So I think that the show is interesting because it's thinking about 
both how to, what it means to be a good woman in the modern world in sort of a moral sense um, that one can be critical of, certainly, um, but also what it means to be a woman in a non-traditional family arrangement. Yeah, and for our listeners who really haven't give, given soap operas much of a shake, don't see a, see a lot of meaning in them, I will second that point that from my own experience studying Arabic and watching many serials, let's say from Syria, where they're a very mm-hmm. big deal, um, that you do see like really interesting social dialogue going on through these series. And if you imagine... Mm-hmm families watching them together. And yeah. even there's been work done on this in the case of Egypt yeah. by Lila Abulokot about um, how people engage with the messages uh, in television melodramas. Yeah. There's really a lot there. And even though Binbir Gedje's connection to the Thousand and One Nights is, you know, a bit tenuous um, and, you know, again, largely forged through the titular character's name and, you know, vaguely being about, um, you know, reforming the bruised man into Mm -hmm. being nicer to women, basically. There's also a way in which the structure of the Thousand and One Nights um, dovetails really nicely with the soap opera format in sort of this kind of endless iterability and, you know, different plot lines and random characters coming in here and there. So there's, I think, something to be said about that, thinking about that connection. Right. If you need to uh, squeeze out another season because the show is just too popular, that sort of, you know, this (laughs) endless storytelling of Shahrazad fits very nicely. I mean, it also speaks to the universality of some of the, these storytelling um, techniques, as you've mentioned, this the show was a huge hit in translation across the world. Yeah, particularly in Latin America. And that's the show fascinating. Was a huge hit. Well, there's so much more we could talk about uh, in this conversation about the 1001 Nights and its cinematic iterations. Uh, I've really enjoyed uh, getting a more complete perspective on this topic, which to me would have been basically it's Orientalism and that's the end of it. I'm glad to learn that there's much more to say about this. Uh, and I've enjoyed talking to you so much. I think it's a, sounds like a great class and I hope that some of my students at UVA will have the chance to take it in the near future. They're, they'd be most welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Samita. We want to also thank our listeners for staying with us to the end of this podcast about A Thousand and One Nights in the Cinema. Remember, you can leave your comments and questions in the blog, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, or in our Facebook group, where you can connect with over 30,000 Ottoman History Podcast listeners and followers. That's all for this episode. Join us next time in our next installment of Ottoman History Podcast.